Hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning back in. Welcome to the 9th episode of the Talk Design to Me podcast. The guest on today's episode is Trish Willard. Trish is a visual designer from Washington DC, specializing in UX design for interactive web products. She worked with organizations like aids.gov and the National Cancer Institute of USA to build products that educate and help people. She also occasionally writes about things like imposter syndrome and designing better products on Medium. In this episode we talked about Trish's journey as a designer we went in detail about some of the projects that she's worked on we talked about how to approach a UI UX redesign how to design functional products that don't compromise on form imposter syndrome the UX uncanny valley and a lot of other fun stuff this is a quick episode that's jam packed with a lot of value and i can't wait for you all to hear this so here goes Hey Trish, welcome to the Talk Design to Me podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Uh, how are you doing today? How was your day? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, uh, so how I came across you was I was just going through my daily dosage of Medium and I randomly came across this article called, you know, uh, about imposter syndrome. And it really intrigues me because I'm someone who uh, feels and goes through imposter syndrome at at a regular basis and i wanted mm-hmm. to see what another designer's take on this was and every single thing that you wrote really struck a chord and i instantly sent it to all my designers so <laughs> you have i really think you're a gifted writer and you're a gifted communicator we'll get into that in a second but tell me about uh, your journey like how uh, what is your first entry point into design where did you first feel like okay design is my thing and how did you get into design and like what's the journey been like to get to where you are right now Yeah, well, um I've kind of had a long kind of winding path. Um and that's probably why I also suffer from imposter syndrome as well. Mm-hmm. I um I actually started in radio and uh like when I was in high school, I wanted to go into radio and be like a talk show host or something really silly like that. And when I actually started getting into radio, I found out that like I did not have a great online or you know on air personality mm-hmm. um but instead I was drawn to the production side so I was doing a lot of creative um audio design and like making commercials and recording um uh, I guess like I was working for Sirius XM at the time and um each channel would have its own branding and identity so I would use audio to kind of emphasize that and create that um after doing that for about 4 years uh I wanted to do a little bit more in the creative field not just with audio but with video graphics animation um just you know kind of pursuing like graphic design um but at the same time i was always really interested in building websites just as a hobby so kind of with my interest in graphic design and building websites it kind of led me to doing more interactive pieces um you know i started kind of melding those two together to to get to where i am today That's great. Uh so I went through your website and uh, your work really intrigues me because you're someone who's worked with mostly the government and created uh you know products or something which is more impactful and not commercial. So can you talk to me a little bit about it and what's your reason for choosing things like that and how has that journey been for you? Yeah, um well I live in the DC area so just by 
virtue of where I live. Um, a lot of the companies cater to government contracts. Um, I was really fortunate to work for a company called ICF um, and they really wanted to do um, things that were very impactful for humanity, um, for the environment, and, you know, just health and human services. So I got the opportunity to work on uh, a lot of projects for the Department of Health and Human Services, working um, on projects for people living with HIV, um, for people um, trying to quit smoking, um, and just other causes of that similar nature. So, but I really enjoyed it because, um, you know, it has deep meaning to like the people who are actually using the products. True. And I could clearly see that every single problem that you're trying to solve had a big impact on the people who use it and the people who need it. So I loved every single piece of work that you have done. And especially my favorite one is Quit Start, right? Oh, thank so, you. Uh, there are certain questions that I have about Quit Start. So if you can just give me a brief overview about what Quit Start is for the listeners, uh, and then I'll take sure. it. Sure. Yeah, Quit Start is a mobile um, application for, um, it's targeted at teens who are interested in quitting smoking. Um, and this was for the National Cancer Institute um, in their smoke-free department. So it's a mobile app that, um, uses uh, a lot of different uh, strategies to kind of keep people mindful of um, when they're smoking and just kind of help them identify triggers and give them feedback, um, like, you know, reasons why they should quit. Um, just kind of be like a personal coach in like on their phone. Great. And it's the form of like, um, sorry, it's the, it, it comes in the form of like cards, like swipeable cards for users to like um, get information like FYI, why are you quitting smoking, inspirational tips, um, and activities and challenges that they could accept and use. Um, so just any kind of like quick content that they could like uh, access when they're having a craving to just kind of help them get through it. That's great. Uh, my question, the first question is, what's the biggest challenge that usually you or anybody faces when designing apps like this, which sort of have to help the user change how they're hardwired, right? Because after a while, smoking becomes something that's autopilot. You don't think about it. It just happens by itself. So it really needs to have so much power to like make you think and make you question your choices. So what are some of the challenges that you went through or someone can go through when designing apps that are behavioral and like, you know, which help you change that pattern? Yeah. So, um, I did have the opportunity to work with subject matter experts at the national cancer Institute that gave me like great feedback. Um, uh, on what content we should provide and, you know, helped us develop the content and strategy. I really didn't know a whole lot of like behavior change strategy going into it, but I learned quite a bit. Um, you know, one thing is that when you have a craving, it actually only lasts about five to 10 minutes and to get through that craving is really important. So if we could just give them anything that they could hang on to for, you know, about 10 minutes, that's kind of enough to get past the craving. Um, and the other um, 
the other big thing is mindfulness. So just kind of helping the user kind of identify what's causing them to have a trigger. So we built into the app um, push notifications based on time of day. Mm -hmm. So you as a, a smoker might know that like the first thing that you do in the morning is want a cigarette. So we could, you know, set up a push notification to kind of have you check into the app. The second thing is push notifications based on geolocation. So um, since this was directed at teens, for example, if you know that you always smoke when you get to the bus stop, you know, we can set up a push notification to have the app remind you, you know, hey, you're here, this is where you normally smoke. Maybe you wanna check in, find something to keep you motivated or just kind of do something that will distract you for these like few moments. That's great. Uh... I mean, that's, 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 there would have been so much research that went, would have, would have went behind this, right? And uh, I, like you said, you worked with industry experts who like help you through this. What are some things that as user experience designers, we can be conscious about and make a part of our, you know, deliberate research when designing apps that can help change behavior? Like what are some things that I can do as a person who's not an expert at understanding behaviors? Well, I think if you know your user, um, one of the things that you as a designer can contribute, you know, aside from being the subject matter expert, you know, on behavior change and smoking is how users would interact with the app. So, for example, you know, I know that, um, um, you know, users are usually fidgety or nervous or, you know, under intense pressure. Um, so, for example, um, my team and I came up with the swipeable card um, motion to get to navigate through most of the content of the app. And that just kind of really goes along with like someone who's sitting there and is like really dealing with, you know, trying to get, trying to find something that will help them get, get through a craving. Um, and that kind of interaction really helps them, you know, um, it just kind of complements kind of what they're feeling. So, you know, swipe, swipe, swipe is, you know, something that a fidgety, you know, nervous person under pressure might, you know, want to do anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the first thing that I was thinking about when I was, uh, you, you know, like reading about this app is uh, for someone who's having a craving, I think that's the biggest uh, issue of the R, right? Like that's what they're constantly worried about. Uh, how does someone go from th stop thinking about it or in a way keeping it aside and opening an app? Like how, what are some of the things that you guys did in the app with like, you know, affirmations or gamification or, you know, some of the badges that you provide for them being consistent that make them come back to the app before, you know, just opening up their secret box? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, we didn't know how successful it would be when we first developed it. We just had a few ideas. Um, um, again, the subject matter experts kind of led the way in that regard. Um, but, you know, forming content that's directed at things that teens can relate to. So, you know, um, basically very targeted, like, did you, for example, facts, um, that a card might show might be related to like teen motivations. Like, did you know that 90% of teens don't smoke? Or did you know that smoking causes you to age faster? 
Um, and I think the games that we included in the app as well, we used open source um, games that we uh, like built in so that they could use as distraction aids. They're very addicting. Um, and they were fun. And so, you know, it spoke to who our audience was. You know, they were doing, I think one of them is a total ripoff of Flappy Bird, um, mm -hmm. but it was an open source version that we reskinned. Um, and I think, you know, I just think it's, it's, it's fun. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so my next question is about 511 New York Ride Chat, right? So okay. I, I believe you redesigned this app. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this was kind of a concept um, okay. design. Uh, uh, so when you're redesigning something, uh, what are some things, because you're someone who's experienced in the field, have been doing it for quite, quite many years, right? So uh, for yeah. someone like me, who's just starting out, I've just been designing, uh, you know, user interfaces and like user experiences for just a couple of years now. So, uh, and also I'm coming from a graphic design background. So when I see okay. an app not well designed, my instant uh, thing goes to how do I make it look better first, right? Uh, what are things that you as someone who's experienced looks at when redesigning an app saying, okay, I don't want to change everything. These are things that need help. These are things that need improvement. And how can someone be mindful of the things that really need your attention versus which don't really affect the whole bigger picture? Um, you know, I, I also come from a graphic design background as well. I mean, I told you that I came in from sort of the visual field or the visual direction. So um, app or design visuals are very important um, for me as well. So I get kind of caught up on that, <laughs> you know, is my, is my weakness. But um, I think I think visuals do play an important part in how a user responds to an app because that's the first thing that someone sees before they even start taking in the interactions um, and um, you know before they really understand what the app is actually trying to do they see the app and they can already automatically internalize how the app looks so i do think that the visual design is important but you know obviously once they start getting into it um, it has to complement the interactions that, you know, the user is doing. And, you know, I think if you can separate the visual design from the interactions, you know, keep it separate um, when you're building the app, kind of figure out how the flow is going to do, and then apply the visual design afterwards, you know, however you want it um, towards the end. I think that's the a good strategy for not getting so bogged down in the visual design, you know, right off the bat. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so my next question is going back to the, uh, you know, the whole point of how I mean, came across here, right? The, let's talk about imposter syndrome. Can you explain for the listeners what imposter syndrome is? And then I have a few follow-up questions. Yeah. Sure. Imposter syndrome is just kind of the, like underlying feeling that a person gets when they're in their professional space that they don't have the qualifications or the background to give them the expertise and that they might be exposed as a fraud, you know, their, their peers or colleagues might find out that they don't actually have the credentials to be making the decisions that they are making, you know, even if they're completely valid and smart, um, 
you know, it's, it's something that affects both men and women. Um, you know, just kind of this underlying feeling that you're not good enough and that you don't know what you're doing. And why do you think that's so prevalent in our industry? Well, I think that in the tech industry in general, it's such a fast moving industry that's constantly evolving and changing. Um, there are new standards and best practices being constantly put out there, new design ideas being shared um, and pushing, you know, the way people interact with technology forward. So it's, it's definitely very hard to keep up with like the constant design trends the changes, you know, everything like that. So, you know, I think it's very easy to, to, to feel like you're out of touch with design and technology if, if you just sleep on it for just even a few minutes. Yeah. This, there's always a new software. There's always something that comes up new, like a new trend, and you always have to keep constantly learning, right? Like one trend that you're behind, you just feel, okay, like I don't know what I'm doing and I need to like, get back to the speed and things like that and yeah. uh, uh so my next question is uh like talking about imposter syndrome and it being uh you know so prevalent in the design industry uh we also have to look at uh when you're talking about ux uh, most people who are also like top of the industry say that okay ux is not that complicated and you know like uh it's pretty much common sense right so i understand how <laughs> people who uh, practice UX design can feel like that because sometimes even the best of the best people in your same industry can say, okay, that's not too much. Like anybody can do this. And like, you know, it's not that hard. It's not rocket science and things like that. But when it comes to even designing interfaces, there's certain skill involved. Like you are consciously learning, you're consciously growing, but there's still this imbalance of even in some of the designers who have been designing it for 10, 15 years, they still have this, right? So, so what are some things that I, uh, we can consciously be aware of and you know, tell ourselves to like stop feeling this? <laughs> you mean some coping strategies yeah. for... Sure. Yeah. Well, I think, well, my biggest strategy for, you know, being aware that there are constantly evolving trends um, is just when I'm approaching a, a, a problem, I basically tell my, you know, whoever I'm working with, I always like to work with another person and collaborate, not just designers, but developers. Um, but, you know, my personal strategy is just saying like, okay, I'm just going to talk out loud here. I'm just going to spitball some ideas. They might be stupid, but, um, you know, at this point, we're just, we're just going to say whatever comes to our mind and, you know, iterate off of that. And that's never failed me, you know, admitting that you might come up with some stupid ideas at first. Um, nobody's ever called me out and been like, you are really dumb or anything like that. So I, I think, you know, if, if you're transparent about like the fact that you're not going to come up with the most perfect solution, you know, the most ingenious like interaction off the top of your head, I think people respect that and understand that, you know, there's nobody that's going to like come up with something, um, you know, that would like blow their minds, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that really helps. Right? Like that's something that I never consciously think about is do I just say it because 
you know i got this idea and i'm always at the back of my head thinking okay how is this going to sound how is this going to work and i start thinking the practical reasoning and logic behind it and you know half the time goes there itself before even you like say it out loud i think yeah really you just got to say it yeah. <laughs> you just got to blurt it out there and you know admit that like okay this is not a stupid idea but maybe we could go from here um you know and another thing is is like definitely work with someone collaborate um as much as you want to like probably try to come up with a solution at your desk and like show it to people when you've reworked it a thousand times in your head um it's usually better when you bring someone in early on and you get out those stupid ideas and you you know evolve those ideas with someone else because you'll always come up with something you know usually you'll usually come up with something you know much better than working alone true and uh, let's talk about writing for a minute right so for <laughs> someone i absolutely love your writing i fan girl your writing cuz i think you have a very very strong uh, you know capability of explaining whatever it is in the most simplest terms but in a very conversational tone like when i was reading your article it genuinely felt like someone was talking to me about this and not that i was reading an article that was just out there for everybody in the internet right uh how important do you think is writing for designers and how has it helped you and you know talk to me a little bit about writing in your life that's funny cuz i honestly you know i just use my own voice when i write i i i didn't really think about it but <laughs> again i you know make sure that i showed the article to a few people before i published it um to get some feedback um but i you know i think my philosophy for design and for writing is to be as transparent as possible um so these are my feelings you know they might sound silly and you know i'm just once again going to put it out there and see how people respond to it so you know i'm not trying to flower anything up i'm just kind of stream of conscious shooting from the hip and how important do you think is the skill of writing for designers and ux designers in general well i think as much as possible if you can say things concisely and you know use that you know if you're if you're writing content for your app giving people directions on how to use the app you know try to be as to the point as possible and as simple as possible you know i work with um developers right now and um i can't do all the content writing so they will write stuff ahead of me and then i'll come back and edit it and <laughs> it's just the most like circular like i don't know <laughs> overly complicated instructions on how to you know make a simple action and a lot of times i just cut out so much because people aren't dumb you know and the longer that you write um like the longer the sentences are the the more people will like drop off and not understand it and um you know seeing a big block of text is also very intimidating so you want to try to make it as uh you know digestible um as possible 
Great. And my next question is exactly on the opposite side of this. And this is something that <laughs> I wrote about as well is the UX uncanny valley, right? Like the friction that is required at the core of designing an interface or an app or an experience. Uh, as a person who's starting, uh, who started out with designing uh, apps and products, the biggest mistake or the biggest misconception I had is ease of use equals to good UX, right? Uh, the biggest thing that I thought was, okay, if it's if it just takes three clicks to click this, that means they're going to love it. They're, they're here to do that. And if they can just do it in a second, like it's done. So they're going to love this app and it's going to be easy to use and like they're going to have the best experience. And But when I was reading your article, I realized, how important it is, right? Like when I'm applying for something or when I'm, you know, like uh, withdrawing something, there needs to be something that affirms me that, okay, this is happening. And, you know, like informs me that what's going to happen next and things like that. That little points of friction, like when you delete something in uh, yeah. Windows, like, you know, it doesn't just disappear and ask you, like, are you sure you want to delete this? And uh, there is a psychological factor to it. And that's something that, you know, like, uh, comforts people as well when they're creating certain actions. So, uh, can you talk to me a little bit about uh, what is UX Uncanny Valley is and why it's so important? Yeah. Um, so, when I came up with the UX Uncanny Valley, um, you know, I was I was working on something where, like you said, um, clicks. A lot of times, uh, so people falsely attribute. Um, like reduce, reducing the number of clicks as a key performance metric. And they're like, oh, well, people can get through it faster. It's so much easier for them. But that's actually, you know, and most of the times it, it is helpful to, you know, reduce the number of steps that a user takes to get from point A to point B. Um, but if you make it too easy for them, like you said, it, it almost feels like maybe maybe they're uneasy. Like if you delete something and it disappears too fast, um, you know, they wonder what happened. If I restart my Apple computer, when I, when I got my new computer, um, I upgraded from a really old one. And when you like restarted it, it would like power down, you know, it would take a long time. Um, but now when I restart it, it just turns black and then turns back on in like a second. And I'm not even sure that it like powered down correctly. So I'll like turn it off and I'll wait a few seconds and then I'll turn it back on. And that's exactly like what I'm talking about when it's like too easy, it's unsettling. True. Um, and you know, even though you, you think that a, a person wants things to be faster, it's not always the case. Um, there was this one study on Mythbusters where they did um, an experiment to see if customers um, at a grocery store moved through the line faster if they could pick which register that they went to versus one long snaking line and they just went to the next available register. And so they found out that people who pick their own, pick their own like grocery register line to go to actually got through the process a lot faster. Um, however, um, there was a lot of anxiety over which line do I pick? You know, which one has the shorter amount of people? Um, which like 
I, I guess like how many how many items do I have versus how many items does this person have? You know, there was a lot of like thought going into to which line should you go through first versus one long snaking line and then you just go to the next person who is available. Um, that process took much longer, but the user experience was actually better because it reduced all the sort of like things that you have to do in the back of your head to calculate which line to go to. So that's another example of where you have, you know, you think that the user wants to get through something much faster, um, but, you know, not always is that the right metric to, to use as like as a metric of success. True. And yes, right. These are these small things that really matter. Cause as you were saying about it, I was picturing myself do this and it's a constant struggle every single time where there are three aisles and like, you know, even though one's empty, the first question I think is why is it empty? Like why hasn't <laughs> anybody gone there? It's probably because, you know, probably it's, it's because it's closed or probably it's because, you know, like the cashier has gone out or something like that. And when I see the other two, there's one person standing there and there's two people standing on the other side. Then you got to start comparing, okay, does this person have like a large, large amount of, uh, you know, things that they want to check out and, the, and I start like calculating these things. And even when you go stand in the queue, you start seeing the other queue move forward and it's a constant struggle till you, till it comes to your turn. So yeah, I think there's a lot of factors that play into what, counts as a good user experience and not always the fastest thing is the best experience. Yeah, it's not always the easiest experience or the quickest experience. Um, you know, it's not always reducing the amount of clicks. You know, people want to make sure that the decisions that they make are ones that they don't have to second guess or look back on. You know, so if you make it too easy for them, they need the feedback that like that they actually made the right decision. I think that people need the comfort in knowing that they've uh, looked at certain options and uh, if, if, if the app or the experience just does it for them, I think there's a little bit of like rebellion, like, uh, like, maybe I could do it better, you know? <laughs> Another example um, is um, in the government space, um, we, try to do, we try to make stuff easier for people to analyze big data. Um, and sometimes, you know, when we're, we're making software to do this, um, it goes too fast and it thinks too quickly and people, you know, they're given, um, you know, analysis, but they don't trust it. So what they will end up doing is redoing analysis the manual way, just to know that, um, that the speedy, like, automatic analysis that we've been trying to give them is actually accurate and right. So they don't trust it. So you don't want people to have to go back and redo the same stuff, just so that they're assured that that they're getting accurate results you know so that's something that you should that you know a person should consider when they're making stuff got it 
and i did a section in my podcast called make the logo bigger right <laughs> uh, which you know where that's going down and that's like the nightmare of every single graphic designer and designers in general cuz these are things that don't affect your design in a positive way but are just nitpicking things to like satisfy the client's need so my uh, point with this whole section is what are some things that you hate not necessarily like multiple but even one thing that you hate about working with clients that you wish could instantly get better and you know that would change the way you work sure so you know i came from kind of a graphic you know creative agency before and now i'm working in sort of more of the software development side of things um and i would say that one thing that drives me crazy is you know creative agencies are more and more getting into interactive applications and websites and stuff like that and kind of the status quo when you're working uh on you know creative marketing and advertising is you take the requirements from a client you go back into your designer hole and then you show up to the meeting and you blow them away with highly polished you know high um high resolution designs um really want to like blow them away and that's kind of the direction that you're given from like a creative director or something like that and so now that we're getting into more interactive spaces um it's just not the way that we should go about doing these things it's too expensive and if you show them high fidelity stuff right off the bat you know clients kind of get fixated on that and you can't it's also a lot more time consuming for designers to be updating those pieces versus you know going from a wireframe and iterating off of that so like my biggest pet peeve is go moving too quickly on the high resolution high definition perfectly polished designs that you show to a client you know at the first meeting cuz that's what they will expect from that point on and you mm -hmm. can't go back and it's it's very time consuming and it's very expensive if you show them you know too nice of stuff before you've done all the research and the testing and the workflow um so i would say that if you're coming from an agency space definitely push for wireframes and low fidelity stuff and like i said before keep the visual design separate as much as possible develop mood boards keep it abstract you know until you get to the point where you finalize some of the wireframes and the flows before you start melding it together <laughs> that and i think you talked about uh, really like i really resonated with it cuz i think that's one of the biggest mistakes i made as someone who's starting out is especially cuz when you're working for in a graphic design space you usually just show them the end final piece which is you know the yeah. most polished one and like the final uh, result right but uh, so when you're coming from there you're sort of thinking okay when they want to see a designs a design of an app they obviously want to see the final thing so you end up showing them that and every single change that you have to make like something about you know some gradient that you've used or something about some pattern that you've used and it's so hard to take a step back and say okay like now i have to change the entire way that this app looks and <laughs> there at that point the whole discussion became about how the app looks versus how the app functions right because 
the core of it is about how it should function and how it should cater to what it's supposed to and i would see myself in positions where i'm more worried about like how it looks versus how it functions and uh, i'm someone who's very conscious about how important sketching wireframes is and you know putting your thoughts on paper and things like that but i never realized the importance of doing low fidelity wireframes where your basic design is everything is done but you're not like you know making it uh, look pretty and making it like you know exactly like polished and things like that and that kind of takes the whole uh, you know attention away from how the app looks versus how the app functions and that really plays a difference in how to actually like effectively design screens and go through the entire testing and like uh, you know feedback process so thank you so much yeah. for that yeah yeah and i was going to say when when you show a client um high fidelity designs that's the most tangible thing that they could comment on because you know they might not have a full understanding of interactions or you know flow or basically you know any kind of sort of psychological motivations that you as a designer might be thinking in the back of your head um but they know that they don't like that color blue <laughs> so you know it's it's very easy for them to grasp onto something that's kind of more familiar for them so that's why i recommend like at first you know until you've gotten a good amount of work done on how you want the app to function um to try to keep the visual designs separate you know showing them you know not specific um, kind of looks and feels that you think might be appropriate for the app or for the website or whatever it is you're working on. Um, you know, maybe developing a pattern library, you know, to some extent, but not actually putting it in the app until they have made enough comments on the flow and how it functions. Um, to really be able to give good criticism and um response to to the app you know instead of just fixating on the visual design got it got it thank you so much for that and uh, that brings me to my final question it's uh I, as someone who's designed a lot of things and i've been in the industry for quite a while what is something that you suggest or like you know what is your advice for a beginner uh, UX designers, like what are things that you think they should be more conscious about and work towards consciously? Um, hmm. Let me think about this for a second. Um, I guess it depends. Um, there are so many different deep dives into user experience these days, whether or not you want to concentrate on the visual design or just the interactions or um, even the research part and you know you can if you wanted to find a job where you just concentrate on the visual design of something so I would say you know definitely play around with what you think is the the most fun part of you, you know being a designer um, for me I really enjoy the interactions um, coming up with how to like coming up with the flow of how to get someone to to a certain screen or to click on a button or you know to give them kind of a hint as to what to do next um so i would you know 
I like to capitalize on that. But, you know, I think if you're starting out, you should definitely play with all the different kind of aspects of user experience and, you know, decide which, which part you like the best. Um, and the biggest thing for me is don't be snobby about, you know, thinking that um, user experience interactions are more important than the visual design or research is more important than whatever. Um, my biggest kind of pet peeve and kind of sort of the sentiment that I touch on in the imposter syndrome article is that people kind of get into their own like little um, silos with what they like to do and they kind of push the other fields away. So I, you know, try to be open-minded because every, every part of user experience and development has an importance. True. Got it. And uh, I, I'm sorry I said that in my last question, but I really have to ask you, what is three books that you suggest for someone who's starting out to get better at, you know, being a user experience designer? Three books? Yeah, like three books that you can think of that can really help someone who's starting out. Um, hmm. So I don't have any specific user experience books, mm -hmm. um, but I will say that one book that I just recently read is Talk Like Ted mm -hmm. um, by Carmine Gallo. And the reason that I like that book is not that it deals with user experience, but it kind of gets behind uh, motivations as to what keeps people interested, you know, whether or not it's an app or you know, something that you're talking about, you know, appealing to people's passions, um, being a good storyteller, um, and um, I don't know, just kind of getting people interested in what you're doing. And, you know, that's not necessarily design related, but it definitely kind of bleeds into what makes a person a good user experience designer, because you're supposed to care about you know, your audience and, you know, try to find ways to connect with them. Um, and similarly, I really liked um, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Um, again, I, I focus on books that kind of help me um, relate to audience um, art audience or users, depending on, you know, what, what you're doing, um, just kind of helping you as a designer get on the good side of who you're trying to interact with, um, whether it's like talking to them, you know, and this could be for clients as well. So like if you're talking to a client, how, how would you present your ideas? Um, you know, these at least these two books could definitely help you speak to your design better so that you could sell your product um, or convince someone that, you know, your ideas are in the best interests of the direction of the app, wherever you want to go. Um, as for a third book, I don't know. <laughs> well, there's another book that I, you know, I think is very important um, for a user experience designer and it's called Don't Make Me Think. You know, it kind of goes into how effortless, you know, and intuitive 
um, user experience should be. Um, you know, again, I wouldn't go too far because then you'll get into the UX Uncanny Valley that I proposed. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, in general, if, if you want to make the experience intuitive and easy for a user, that's always probably the best way to go. Um, so that's definitely some, some, a book that someone should have in their pocket when they're considering being a user experience designer. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for those suggestions. And uh, one last thing that I wanted to tell you is the first thing that as soon as I open your website, though, you know, even before clicking on your website, uh, in Google itself, it says, you know, Trish Willard, and it says has a cat, right? And I think that was absolutely <laughs> yeah. adorable. And I looked up pictures of Loki as well. And he's his most precious. I'm, uh, is it he or she? Key, yeah, is the most precious cat, and uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> I really resonated with this because cause I love my cats, and I know how that feels like. And it was super. He's actually a total asshole, but <laughs> um, but he's a good cat. Yeah, and I mean, aren't all cats assholes? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to some extent. You yeah. know, I no, I don't know because I, I had two cats when I was younger, and they were the sweetest, most like cuddle some cats and so um you know after they had passed on it had been many years since i had a cat so then i got loki and he was not anything like those other cats <laughs> he was just like <laughs> totally wild all over the place you know loud my my other cats never meowed or anything like that so um he's definitely got lots of personality <laughs> Fortunately, my cats actually are also very mellow. They're, they're pretty much like borderline, you know, in dog territory. Like they're very clingy, they're very needy, and they're very like cuddly and sweet. And they don't meow and they don't destroy anything. So I'm, I've actually been fortunate. That's how my other cat used to be. Not Loki. He's the opposite. He's constantly crying. He's running around like a crazy person all over the house all this time. That's great. And uh, thank you so much again. I'm really, really grateful for you to take the time out. I know you've had a long day, but still took the time out to be on and, you know, like spend some time to like uh, help me out and, you know, help the audience out. Thank you so much for it. And uh, like, I'm super grateful. Thank you. You're welcome. It was such so much fun to be on, on with you. And I'm glad that you got up so early in the morning to have a chat with me. Yeah, this is, I'm, I'm actually surprised at myself. I woke up at six o'clock in the morning. The last time I was up at six was when I just didn't go to sleep the entire night. <laughs> and I don't, I can't even recall when I was up at six in the past six months or like a year. Or so like I was really oh, well, excited to have you on and you know, it was totally <laughs> worth it. There were so many things that you shared, which really helped me out in like how I look at UX as well. So thank you so much for that.